The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Now, I want to tell you, you saw a little bit of the scenery of Garden Hill um, in that video, and it is beautiful. When you're able to fly from here to, really, it's, we think it's north, but it's really central Manitoba on the east coast, on the east side of Manitoba. It's beautiful terrain. Um, I had the privilege just this last, uh, about a week ago, to see some other beautiful terrain. I drove to Denver on July the 9th. I audited my first class, which means I have no homework to do. They let me come for free. It's like the highlight of being done, being able to go back and just enjoy learning without any real cost to it. So that was nice. Uh, But anyways, I had a class from July 11th to the 15th. And then with a number of my classmates, we decided to go for a drive on Saturday. And we went up a place called Mount Evans. Mount Evans is one of the many uh, peaks they have there that's at the 14,000 feet elevation. And so this picture here that you can see, this is at 10,000 feet. You go up there, it's called Lake Summit. It's beautiful, but it starts getting cold. Like it's 37, 38 in Denver, and you start having to put a jacket on, and another couple thousand feet, and there's snow. And so this is around 10,000 feet. This next picture here, this is at 14,000 feet. This is the highest place you can get in North America with your car. And so this is just over 14,000 feet. And uh, I went up and I just looked over and I I thought, this world is just so amazing. I jumped out of a plane at 6,500 feet to go parachuting, right? I I jumped out of a plane at 6,500 feet. My car is twice as high as that plane was right now. (laughs) That's crazy. And I think, Lord has made such a beautiful world. It's fantastic. Every time that I go out of the city and somehow get to be in nature, I'm more in awe of God. That's why he created things. He wants us to see how wonderful he is. He wants us to be in awe of him. And as we move into the, the message today that's based on John 6, the giver of the Holy Spirit, I want to ask you this. How are you intentionally growing in your awe of God? It happens because of God's grace. Things surprise us and we're in awe. But how are you doing that intentionally? Are you looking at each day and saying, Lord, today is another day for me to get more in awe of you? Are you getting out of the city and spending time in nature and saying, Lord, you're so majestic. Look at what you've made. Are you spending time in his word, opening it up and saying, Lord, look at the deep truths that you allow me to understand. And most of all, and this is what the focus is today, are you spending time asking the Holy Spirit to actually reveal that truth to you? Because you can read the Bible and it will mean nothing to you unless the Holy Spirit points you towards Jesus Christ. That's his main role. He is the one who helps us put our eyes on Christ. So how are you intentionally growing in your awe of God? If that's one thing you take away from today, I hope that's it. Right there. What are you intentionally doing? I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to John 16. I'm going to be reading from verses 7 to 15. As you find your place in the Bible, I uh, just want to remind you that last week, Pastor Kevin was looking at chapter 15, and he talked about life in the vine, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Uh, scripture doesn't go this far as actually giving words to it, but today I think we'd be able to say that the Holy Spirit, if, if Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, the Holy Spirit is the sap that goes through it all. He, he's the connecting piece. He's the one who helps us to abide in Christ. Christ died so that his Holy Spirit could come and live in us, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So again, uh, please stand with me, and I'm going to read verses 7 to 15 again from John 16. 
But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I am going to the Father and, be, uh, and where, where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of the world now, now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. May God add his blessing to his word. Please be seated. So in 15, we heard about life in the vine. And the end of 15 starts talking about the hatred of the world towards disciples. And that's the first part of 16. We're going to be giving you a bird's eye view of 16 today. Again, our encouragement to you is to dig deeply into the Word of God at home and talk about it with others. If you really want to grow close to the Lord, those are indispensable for your walk. It's to study the Word of God, asking for the Holy Spirit to guide you, and then talk about it so that it also leads to action in your life. So the first part of 16, we're told a little bit more about what this persecution looks like. It says, they will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. So who are the they? Just to again put this in perspective, these are not just people who don't believe in God, that are hostile to God. These are the people that are supposed to be actually leading people towards Christ. They're the religious leaders. In this context, they're talking about, these are the men, the, the rabbis, they're supposed to be leading you towards God, but this is going to happen by them. They are going to put you out of the synagogue. And the disciples already know this is true because just a little while ago, a blind man was thrown out of the synagogue. In other words, he was excommunicated. He wasn't just thrown out of a building. He was told, you cannot be part of our community. We don't want to have anything with you. That's why people were scared of the priest, because if the priest said, you can't come to the temple, it was like saying, you can't be part of us. And that meant something. They didn't just go to another temple. This was it. So you can't be with us. So this is a real danger. You could lose fellowship with people you care about. And then it says this, there's people who will kill you. And they will kill you thinking that they are actually doing a service to God. Now, Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, he didn't end up being killed by them, but they had the intent to do that because he was witnessing about the goodness of Christ. And they wanted him dead because more people were believing in Jesus because of his testimony. And if you think in the book of Acts, it's not too far in the future from when these words were spoken that we see a man named Saul sitting at the coats of the other people who are picking up stones to stone a man named Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr. These are people who die for their faith by people who think that they are honoring God. So can you imagine that if you were the one being persecuted, if you were going to be excommunicated, if your life was in danger, and you thought you were doing well, you were honoring God, but here's the leaders, the people who should know 
more should be leading you towards Christ? They're the ones persecuting you? Don't you think you might feel a little bit in despair? Maybe a little bit of doubt? Am I actually doing the right thing? And, and Jesus says, you know what? I really want you to know this. The reason they're doing it is because they have not known the Father or me. These men who are supposed to be my representatives, they're the thieves, they're the robbers, they're the hired hands. They don't know me. You do. Jesus is telling them in the midst of this persecution, I want you to know that you belong to me. And this persecution is evidence of that. They're sheep who hear God's voice. So the question I have for you today as we start talking about the Holy Spirit is, how do you hear the voice of God? If we're sheep, you either are able to hear God's voice or you're not by the grace of God. How do you hear the voice of God? And today we learn a little bit more about how that's possible by God's grace, what he's done with the Holy Spirit. And this comes down to the next uh, verses from 5 to 15. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Here we see in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is for your good. Again, we've talked about this before, but could you imagine if you had the privilege of spending any amount of time with Jesus, tangibly with you, life with you, to give you guidance, to watch his lifestyle, to see his character lived out with others. Could you imagine that anything could be better than that? And Jesus tells these men that he's lived three years with, it's better that I go. Yeah, right. No, it's true. It is better. I can tell you right off the bat, we can already know two things from John, why it's better. First of all, because always Jesus had a redemptive perspective in his life. He knew that he needed to die so that our sins could be forgiven. That's one of the reasons why it's better for him to go. Another reason is because he also knew that death was not going to hold him, that he was going to raise up, he would be resurrected. He had a resurrection perspective, that his life would last forever. And what we see in him, the goodness, everything that we'd want to be in him, death can't stop it. That's another good reason. But then he says, I also have someone to send to you, and that's the counselor. And the counselor can't come to you unless I die. He doesn't use those words here, but this is what it means. Unless I die and go back to my father, I can't send you the counselor. Before we go further, I just want to highlight this. It's important to think about who the Holy Spirit is. He is not an it. He is a person. He is one of the Trinity. His role is to point us to Christ, to help us abide in Christ. He is never the focus. We think of the Holy Spirit because he is Christ's life in us. That is his role. He always shows us towards Christ. The Bible says he has a mind, he has a will, he has emotions. There's many different names given to the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a person. And I'd encourage you to be thinking that way. Think about how, when you talk about him, what kind of words come out. And if the word it ever comes out, learn to stop that. Because he's not an it. He's a person. He's the most intimate person that you can know, believe it or not. So the Bible says, the next verse says that the Holy Spirit has a work in the world. This is the only place in the New Testament 
where the Holy Spirit is mentioned in working with the world. All the rest of the time is with us as believers. So John 6 verse 8 says this, When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The next verse, verse 9, says, In regard to sin, because they don't believe me. They don't believe in me. So this is saying that this, when it says about convicting of sin, and convict can be, it could also be the word convinced, but the Holy Spirit, his role is to help people see reality as it is. We are all blinded by our sin. We get distracted. The Holy Spirit helps us to see things as they are. And this word sin is not referring to, hey, did you, did you uh, shoplift something? Did you lie? Did you gossip? Did you do? It's not talking about the things that you've done wrong. It's talking to what the essence of sin is. And verse 9 tells us it's because you didn't believe in Jesus. That's it, right there. You want to know what sin is? It's not believing in Jesus. You know what my sin is during the day? Often, and this is the hard thing to understand, is everything I do that's not done in faith is sin. It's so easy to look at all the, just the things we say are bad things, and let's not do those. But what about the good things we don't do? And the Bible says you need to keep your eyes on Christ. I need to keep my eyes on Christ, because anything I do that's not done in faith, that's not done to honor Him, is actually sin. My sin runs so much deeper than I realize. And when I recognize that, my understanding of God's grace is just, whoa, Lord, you're amazingly good and gracious to me, far beyond what I recognize. And the proper response is love. The proper response is joy. So he does that for the world. He helps people to see that they haven't believed in Jesus. And he does that so that they have a chance to repent. God's heart is for all people to know them. They might not repent, but the Holy Spirit convicts so people can repent. Then it says in righteousness. He convicts them of righteousness. That's kind of odd. He doesn't convict them of unrighteousness because this isn't about them. He's convicting them about you haven't recognized this in Christ. Do you see the righteousness of Christ? Verse 10 says, because he goes to the Father and you won't see me anymore. That's why the Holy Spirit has to do it. The, Jesus isn't walking around here. So the Holy Spirit reminds us of the righteousness of Christ, that he was so righteous that he could actually enter into the presence of God. Oh, I'm not like that. I could never be like that. And you're right. I'm right. On my own, I could never be like that. I read a quote by a guy named uh, J. Vernon McGee, and this hit me. He said, either we have as much right in heaven as Christ himself has, or we have no right there at all. That's a pretty powerful statement. I have every much right to be in heaven as Christ does. If I say that of myself because of the way I lived my life and the good deeds I've tried to do, that's a big fat lie. But... If my life has been surrendered to Christ, I've died to myself, I find life in Christ, which is in the Holy Spirit, then I do have every amount of right to be in heaven as Christ does because of his grace towards us. That's beautiful. How can we not want to tell people about that? And finally, about judgment. This isn't talking about the future judgment that everybody will face at the, in, in the future for their lives. This is talking about the judgment that has already been given to Satan. 
that Satan has already been tried. This world has been tried. When the world says that Jesus came not to condemn the world but to save it, the reason it says that is because the world is already condemned. There's no trial going on here, guys. It's done. We, without Christ, are guilty. And this world is lost. That's why it says Christ came to save. He didn't need to come and pronounce it all. It's done. We're guilty. But Christ came to save. And the Holy Spirit comes to remind us or to tell us that so that we can repent. That The world, in this context, can repent. The important thing to remember is that the Holy Spirit doesn't just kind of float around. He's not like a, like a ghost, you know. The Holy Spirit says, the, just the verses before this says, Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to us so the Holy Spirit can do this. Which means that the Holy Spirit works through our lives to help the world be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Do you understand that that's your, pretty much your major role in life? is to let the Holy Spirit use you to let that be done so that people can come to know Christ? You want to know what your purpose is? It's your sanctification, and it's this. And then God, Christ speaks specifically to the believers about the Holy Spirit. We have to remember the context here. All Scripture is inspired and is useful for us, but there are specific people being spoken to when you read verses in the Bible. So these verses are specifically written to the 11 disciples. Okay, these are the words that Jesus is speaking to them. So he says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. Okay, so what I want to highlight here is the, there are many things that the Holy Spirit does, and we need to, I can't wait to get more deep into to an understanding of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we go through Scripture together. In John, though, he's speaking to the 11 disciples, and he's saying that the Holy Spirit is going to guide you 11 into all truth. And what I take this to mean, at least, is that he's saying, through you, the, wor the word that's going to change the world is going to happen. The New Testament is going to arrive. In 1426, it says that he, Jesus says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit will come, the Counselor will come, to remind you of all the things I've told you. They couldn't remember everything that had happened in their life with Jesus. They forgot a lot of it, but they didn't understand about it. So one of the roles was for Jesus, for the Holy Spirit, to remind them of what they had experienced with Jesus. Those are the Gospels. The verse before this says, I have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. The Holy Spirit came to tell them the things that they weren't able to bear while Jesus was with them. Those are the epistles. Those are the letters that we read that are the truth that are the following on. And then it says, he will tell you what is yet to come. Well, those are the words of Revelation that John wrote in the book of Revelation. That's the New Testament. That's specifically what this is talking about. It's not talking about he'll guide you into all truth that exists. I believe the Holy Spirit does do that, but that's not what this is saying. This is saying scripture is going to be written through you 11. <laughs> At least that's how I take it to mean. So I just have a little image to help us remember or remind here is that one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is inspiration for those 11 men. Those 11 men, well, not all of them, but the people who wrote the New Testament, they were inspired by God to write the Bible. And for us, these verses, of course, are still applicable for us, but a better word, we're not inspired as we read the Bible, but we are illuminated. Our minds are, are awakened to the reality of God. 
So he uses the Bible. We can read the Bible and hear truth, but unless the Holy Spirit helps us understand who Christ is, it's just another book. It's a great piece of literature. But it's the Holy Spirit that makes the Word of God come alive. And this is the key thing that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. He will bring glory to me. That is the Holy Spirit's role. He will bring glory to me. So if you're ever wondering, is the Holy Spirit at work? A good question. This is a good question. How do I know the Holy Spirit's at work? When I see people laughing and falling down and stuff like that, is that the Holy Spirit at work? Well, it only is if the end game is that God is actually glorified in it. That's what I can tell you. If there's any activity that's happening and in some way you're not growing in your appreciation of Christ, it's not the Holy Spirit. Pure and simple. Holy Spirit glorifies God and he does it by making, uh, by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. That's primarily speaking about the knowledge I have of my Father. Christ knows his Father intimately. He came so that we could know his Father, become united with his Father and live life eternally with his dad. So then we move into a section here after talking about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit will do. He talks about uh, sorrow turning into joy. He tells his disciples, in a little while I will be gone, and then in a little while later you will see me. And they're all confused about this. They don't know what that means. And I'd be confused too if I was with them at that time. But we know in hindsight it meant that in a little while you won't see me. Well, Christ was going to die. He was going to be gone for three days. They would not see him, and they would be in deep grief. Really deep grief. And then in a little while you will see me. Well, after the resurrection, he was with them for 40 days. So it definitely alludes to that. But then also the Holy Spirit will come. So they won't see Jesus physically, but they will experience the presence of Christ in their life. And they will see life through the eyes of Christ in that way. So he says, you're going to weep and mourn because I'm gone. And then in these, verse, these words in verse 20, you will grieve but your grief will turn to joy. You will grieve while the world rejoices. This isn't now speaking specifically to us and our circumstances today. These things, again, we can always get meaning for our lives today, but this situation is you 11 are going to be grieving deeply and the world is going to be rejoicing greatly. And you know why? Because I'm going to die on a cross. And pretty much everybody wants me dead. And they're going to celebrate when I die. It's going to be like Christmas. He didn't use those words, but that's really what it was. It says that there's gifts given when he dies. So you have grief, but that grief is going to turn into joy. And so that grief for Christ dying on the cross, also for them it would be persecution in time. The key here, though, is that God doesn't say, I'm going to change your circumstance. He says, I'm going to transform your grief to joy. He doesn't say, I'm going to take away your grief and make life joyful. That grief is going to still be there, but you're going to find joy in the midst of your grief. I can transform it. I wasn't sure if I was going to share this story with you or not, but it impacted me greatly this last week when I was in class. One of my professors, uh, he told the story about uh, when he was uh, younger, uh, first married, had two young children, and uh, his wife had a neurological disease, and uh, they knew that her life was going to end. He had not been given hope for her, and uh, they had just been praying that the Lord would keep them strong, 
wisdom for raising the girls. And um, that was pretty much what they prayed. They had prayed, of course, for healing, but at a, at a certain point, there didn't seem to be that hope unless something miraculous just happened. And the day, the last day that he was with her, he had, she had been in a slight coma, and he said, Lord, I just want to have a chance to tell my wife I love her one more time and assure her of her salvation. And he was in a room with her all alone. Doctors were out of the room, and her, her eyes opened up, and he was able to say, I love you, Christ loves you, and you're going to be with him soon. The girls are going to be okay. And right after that, her body started thrashing because of the disease she had, and there was no doctors in there. He said he got on top of her to hold her down so that she didn't hurt herself more. And as he was doing that, she passed away. And he just broke and sobbed and cried. And then he said the most amazing thing happened in the midst of that deep anguish that I never could imagine before. There was part of me that also had a laugh. And I can't explain it to you except for this. It was in that moment that God taught me my faith is real. I fully believe that my wife is with the Lord. And I fully believe that he will sustain me. Even though I know what's yet to come will be hard. He transformed grief to joy in, the, in that man's life. So... The Bible tells us, the next verse says, it's like a, a woman who's in labor. Some of you in this room have had the privilege of this. Big pain. Big, big pain that men can't understand. And the Bible says that it's going to be this type of grief. You know it's coming. Your day is near. And then all of a sudden, boom, your baby's born and the grief is forgotten. And the thing that actually caused you your pain is now what causes your joy. That's what life with Christ is like sometimes. Deep pain with Christ that will turn into deep joy. And it says this, I will see you again and no one will ever take away your joy. Can I just emphasize this? That God here isn't talking about your daily circumstances of struggle. He's talking about, for his disciples, the deep grief that he was going to be gone. Do you ever think that we have such a privilege that we don't have to face that in our life? Christ is never away from us. We've never had to experience that once we give our lives to Christ. That's why my joy can't be taken away, because Christ can't be taken away from me. He can't be taken away from you. People can do whatever they want to you. Your whole life can go crazily bad, and Christ is still in you and loves you and redeems you and promises you eternity with him. That's the joy that can't be taken away. Don't read this as a momentary situational thing. So let me ask you, when you look at your life, has your joy been taken away? And maybe it has been in aspects of life. There's things that you struggle with, but your ultimate joy is with Christ, and that joy transforms every other situation. Please know that. The next verses go on to say this, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. 
in that day specifically refers to Pentecost, I believe. Jesus died, he ascended, and when the Holy Spirit comes in that day, from that point on, you don't have to ask Christ directly for anything. You can ask the Father. We often say about praising to, praying to Jesus, and there's nothing wrong with that, but Jesus himself says, you can ask the Father directly. Another verse says, I no longer have to ask the Father. You can ask the Father directly. He's our mediator, but he says, you have that type of blessing because the Holy Spirit now lives in you. And the Father loves you. As the Father loves me, the Father loves you. That's why your joy can be full. You have every right to be in heaven with the Father as I do. That's why your joy can be full. That's why you can face whatever comes your way. What beautiful, beautiful news for us. Because the Father loves you. When you've given yourself to Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, the Father loves you. Because you love his Son. Not because you're inherently worthy without Christ. You're not. I'm not. But because the Holy Spirit lives in me and is the presence of Christ. We have part of this relationship of the Trinity. And then our joy can be complete. I just want to highlight these words here. Ask, believe, and receive. As believers, it's important that we continually ask our Father for the things that are needed for every day. And most of all, that our eyes will stay on Him so that our paths will be straight. You can ask about lots of other things, but I, I'd suggest asking that God uses your life to glorify Him it should be at the top of the list every morning. Lord, when I wake up, Lord, please use me today to glorify you. Lord, please use me today to help other people be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they might get to know you as I know you. That is the most important thing of today, Lord, that you are glorified. God loves answering that prayer. And he cares about all the other circumstances in life, but they have their place. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. Please don't think about all the minor things first in your day. Because they don't feel minor to you, but they are when you get into the presence of God. And then he says, I know that you need these things taken care of. And I will care for them for you. But we need to believe that God will be faithful and we need to receive. Very briefly, if we had a whole day to talk about the Holy Spirit and about Christ, I would talk about what it means for us to be receivers. This isn't takers. This is receivers. Lord, help me to receive whatever it is that you want to give me and then help me to use it to bless others. That's the really core to our faith. So as we come to a close, I just want to highlight the last verse that Sonia mentioned with the children. This is uh, verse 33. Uh, Jesus says these beautiful words, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What are these things? This is the last conversation that Jesus has in what's called this final discourse, the farewell discourse that has started in the upper room with the supper. We've heard about Jesus being the, the true servant. We've heard about the way to the fathers through Jesus Christ. We've heard about him being the vine and we're the branches. We've heard about our need to love one another. And then we've heard about be prepared to be persecuted because of Christ. Those are the things. And he's told us these things so that you're not surprised by what happens in this world. And he's told us so that we can have peace 
And that peace is found in Christ. Peace is not something that is just floating out there. It's in a person. It's in abiding with Christ. Peace is conditional. It can only come through abiding in Christ. And John 14, verse 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up now, and as they come up, I just want to let you know that in the fall, starting Thanksgiving on for seven weeks, we're going to be using this book as a devotional to help us get to know Christ better. And actually, if you can put the slide back on. Um, so we're going to use this for seven weeks. It's called The Indwelling Life of Christ, All of Him and All of Me. And I just want to read you one quote from this, and then we're going to be closing in a song together. And I think this is very suitable for what we've been talking about today. To walk in the Spirit is to have such utter confidence in Him that you first seek His instruction, then ask no further questions, and simply do as you're told. To all who do this, the promise of God is that they will not walk in the lusts of the flesh. The Holy Spirit within you is fully able to deal with the flesh and put it and keep it in the place of death. Let him do it. Don't struggle to be a Christian in your own strength. You won't make it. You can't do it. The only person who has the right to live in you is Christ through his Holy Spirit, and he can make life with him possible. And with that, let's close in a song.